Welcome to Parallel Worlds, audio issue 11, July 2020. The best of this month's Parallel Worlds magazine, expertly recorded. Press A to jump. Mobility in video games. Jumping has been a part of gaming for as long as any of us can remember. It's no surprise that the jump mechanic holds such an important place in video game history, dating back to 80s arcade games. Today, games have moved on in nearly every way, but it's a rare game that doesn't have a jump button. Why? In early video games, vaulting over obstacles was a core element of gameplay. The first to ever utilise the jump mechanic was a 1978 game called Frogs, in which the player controlled a frog that leapt into the air to collect flies. Don't remember it? Well, it didn't make much of a splash. However, it did pave the way for a new genre of gaming, the platformer. Whilst not the very first game of the platforming genre, the first platformer that utilised jump mechanics and received critical praise was Donkey Kong, released by Nintendo in 1981. Donkey Kong was the first to marry the idea of scaling platforms and jumping over gaps and obstacles as a means of progressing towards a goal. In this case, the princess and a big monkey. Not only did Donkey Kong popularise the platformer genre, but it also birthed some of gaming's greatest icons, Donkey Kong and Jumpman, whom you might know better by the name Mario. The platformer genre dominated the early 80s in arcades thanks to the groundwork set by Donkey Kong. With the release of the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, and later Super Mario Bros. in 1985, 2D side-scrollers emerged. These would have the player's character move from left to right until they reached a goal, often to find that their princess was in another castle. Now players could control the length and height of their jump, enabling greater control over what the player could do. The jump was also used as a means of attacking enemies. You could stomp on the heads of the Goombas. The original Metroid and Castlevania gave the world a new style of game, a blend between platformer and side-scroller, in 1986. Metroidvania titles started you off with a basic jump, but had players acquire upgrades, such as double jump or dash, to proceed further. This was both progression in terms of the player character, as well as a progression through the game's areas. Over the history of video games, it seems as though every evolution in genre has brought about innovation to the jump mechanic. Fighting games such as Street Fighter in 1987 utilised the jump mechanic for positioning and aerial combos. First-person shooters first implemented a jump mechanic in 1995 with Star Wars Dark Forces, which included a jumping and crouch mechanic as a means of ducking in and out of cover and traversing gaps and ledges. Quake, released in 1996, was the first multiplayer first-person shooter in which jumping was even more important. The shift from 2D corridor shooter to 3D environment meant that the player could have more mobility. Techniques such as bunny hopping and strafe jumping were quickly discovered. By using certain button inputs correctly, players found they could gain increased speed and manoeuvrability. Since then, these mechanics have been a mandatory aspect of high-level play in the multiplayer first-person shooter genre. They've been arguably perfected in the 2016 game Titanfall 2, whose movement mechanics, wall running and jumping, are praised to this day. Jumping has always been a matter of careful consideration in game design. 
Throughout all games that allow the control of an avatar, there has always been a discussion on the feel of how the player controls the character. If the control feels too stiff, the character won't feel natural to play. Go too far in the other direction, and the character will feel floaty. Players commented that in 2018's Super Smash Bros. Ultimate, characters remained too long in the air, and that movement wasn't satisfying. Tommy Rafenes, developer of the 2010 game Super Meat Boy, has commented that he spent two months getting the feel of the jump right for that game. Super Meat Boy is heralded as an incredibly difficult platformer because it demands precise timing and control from the player for them to master its jump mechanics. When jumping isn't implemented well, it can be maddening. One of the most critically marred examples of this is the Blight Town section of Dark Souls, released in 2009. In it, the player jumps from platform to platform in order to descend to the swamp below. However, Dark Souls' controls are clunky. In order to perform a jump, the player had to first sprint by holding a button, then quickly tap the same button to jump. This meant that your character would often stop sprinting, jump too soon or jump too late, and fall to their death. Not only that, but the jump felt heavy. If you happened to clip your feet on the platform you were jumping to, you were knocked out of the jump animation and would fall to your death. Jumping has been widely criticised throughout the Dark Souls franchise, so much that its community took to developing mods for the game that change the mechanics, controls, or even remove Blight Town from the game. We have become so accustomed to having a jump button that when a game lacks one, the game can feel like it's missing something. Outward, released in 2019, is a third-person 3D role-playing game. It lacks a jump button. The game's emphasis is on plausibility and realism, despite its fantastic world, and the developers clearly didn't feel as though jumping was a useful way to traverse its landscape. However, in user reviews and online forums, players have consistently focused on the game's lack of jumping, arguing that it reduces the player's sense of agency and mobility. Rainbow Six Siege is an online first-person shooter game released in 2015 and takes a realistic approach of what it would be like to play as a SWAT operative in a hostage situation or bomb threat. The game boasts a high skill ceiling like Super Meat Boy and Titanfall 2, requiring tactical awareness and teamwork. However, unlike these games, Rainbow Six Siege has no jump mechanic. Of course, no SWAT operative would jump about or try to bunny hop in combat after all. However, players still look for the control to jump and complain online at the lack of it. We rarely jump in everyday life, and it isn't a well-known survival mechanic in armed combat. In our daily lives, we're more likely to climb over or walk around an obstacle than jump over it. Why is it that in games whose world is designed to be traversable without the need for jumping, do players still acutely feel the lack of it? Jumping was an essential part of control in one axis when games were 2D. Now they're not, why is it still so important? It could be that jumping is the main way players have of moving along the third axis. No Man's Sky, released in 2016, doesn't have a jump button, but few players complain of the lack of it as the player has a jetpack. In this way, flight could be the natural evolution of jumping in games, complete control in the third dimension. 2019's Anthem allows the player to both fly and jump, and its world was expressly designed with verticality in mind. While much of Anthem was panned by critics, most players and reviewers agreed that the game's sense of mobility was one of its strengths. 
Developers strive for realism in many ways, but a sense of mobility and agency is key to the escapist appeal at the heart of video games. Removing it seems to reduce players' sense of freedom, even if the game's worlds are not designed to meet it. Perhaps this is the best way to view the ubiquitous press A to jump. Thinking about how necessary it is in a game might miss the point. Jumping isn't a tool for a specific task. It's an essential part of the liberating appeal of video games. Perhaps we like it precisely because it's unrealistic. Games Masterclass, the art of improvisation. Have you ever seen an old map with large stretches that say, here be dragons? This was often done because the cartographer didn't know what was there. When you're creating your own world, it's a sign that you haven't decided yet. In this writer's opinion, one of the most vital skills for a games master is improvisation. No matter how well you've prepared, there'll always come a time when the players ask a question that you don't have an answer to. Want to take an action that the rules don't allow for? Or wander off your carefully prepared map to look for the dragons? At that point, the good games master improvises an answer, rather than shutting the player down. This idea might be daunting at first, but the flexibility that a Games Master can provide is a good thing. It allows your game to be truly interactive and for the players to take whatever action they like, rather than choosing from a list. Different people start with different levels of skill and confidence. Don't worry, the latter is more important than the former, and both will develop with time and practice. If you don't have the confidence, though, the skill will never get the chance. So how can we become more confident with improvisation? For me, there have always been three main strategies. The first is to have the trust of your players, a topic which could be a whole article by itself. Most players will be looking for consistency and fairness from you. In many games, the Games Master has far more power over the world and its inhabitants than a player does. Every action needs to be agreed by you, whether implicitly or otherwise, and you're making decisions for the myriad non-player characters that populate the world. You control the ultimate decisions on how the king treats the party, or how fair-minded the galactic order might be, and the players can only respond to that. There's an old Games Master joke, Rocks Fall. It refers to the power that the Games Master has over the world and the idea that if a player annoys them, they can declare that rocks fall on that player's character and that death occurs. The story may be apocryphal, but it still makes an important point about a very real power imbalance. Trust comes from not abusing it. Does that mean that every combat or encounter needs to be perfectly levelled so that the players can win? No, not at all. Some groups want an adversarial games master or prefer a setting where not everything's level appropriate, and that they're liable to run into threats that they can't handle. What it means is that those threats should be foreshadowed and players should get a reasonable idea of what they can expect. If the king is a tyrant liable to throw them in a dungeon at the first sign of disrespect, there should at least be an opportunity to learn that about him, if not actually witness examples. If a huge dragon lives in the local swamp, nearby residents should know about it. 
You also need to ensure fairness between players. There's a reason most games have initiative systems, so that each player gets their turn, but you need to ensure that each player gets their turn in other scenes too. Outside of combat, I try to ask each player what they intend to do before resolving any actions, to ensure that they all have an opportunity to act. Your calls on the rules also need to be fair. If you'd let one player do something, you need to extend that to all other players, and this can be tricky. Unconscious bias is a very real threat. All of this should help your players to trust your decision-making, and as they trust you more, so too will you begin to trust yourself, which will help your confidence when called upon to make these choices. The second strategy is good knowledge and understanding of your subject matter. Ideally, this will be greater than that of the other people playing, but that isn't strictly necessary or even always possible. You don't necessarily need to know your setting and rules verbatim, but you do need enough awareness to give you an idea of what's reasonable in different circumstances. At the least, try and know what the options your players have invested in do so that you don't undermine those choices. For example, a player who's chosen for their character to be a wizard specialising in fire spells is going to be disappointed if anybody can better their fireball by throwing an oil flask. The same need for consistency holds true of the world and setting details. If there's a war going on between two nations and the party works for one of those, they're unlikely to find help from the residents of the other. Note that I say unlikely rather than impossible. Keep your setting in mind, but don't let it dictate your decisions if players do something unexpected, such as seeking help from the enemy. Perhaps the person they're approaching is a double agent or a veteran who's seen enough of war and now tries to help anybody in need. There are lots of justifications that can be used, but you need to know your setting in order to prepare them. The better your knowledge, the more likely your decisions are to make sense, which itself supports the consistency and verisimilitude of your game and bolsters your player's trust. You are looking to make decisions that are in keeping with the spirit of the original rules, setting or adventure. The ideal situation is when your players can't tell that you've started to improvise, rather than work from your existing knowledge. The more seamless this is, the more believable and authentic a game you have. The third strategy is quite simply to have some tricks prepared. Sometimes you might not be able to think of an answer right away if the players have done something that really surprises you. However, there are ways you can play for time. You'll probably want to drink with you during the game anyway. A lot of talking will dry your throat out. Having a small glass can be better than a big one, because if you need to play for time, you can finish your drink and go to get another. A toilet break can provide the same opportunity, or simply say you need to go and look something up and Go for your book. Why don't we go straight for the book? Because it will generally take too long, and in many circumstances a quick decision is more important than a correct one. If you make a mistake, you can fix it later or discuss with the party if you think your mistake might actually be better. Either way, you've kept things moving, which is the goal. Delays, break immersion and pull your players out of the game. There are other useful tools that you can keep to hand. Naming characters can be the hardest part of creating them, especially when, as Games Master, you need to create so many of them. So a list of names is a fantastic resource. Internet name generators are not the answer, unless all your inns are cheap, nasty holes that rent by the hour, and none of your non-player characters are ever to be taken seriously again. Alternatively, you can have a system, such as naming alphabetically. If the first non-player character had a name beginning with A the next begins with B, and so on. 
Limiting the options available to you can help you to come up with something. Maybe all characters from a certain place in the world have names that sound like they come from a particular region of ours. Although, try to avoid the often slightly offensive typical stereotypes that might go with those regions. Ultimately, though, the most important piece of advice I can give is to say yes. Unless there's a burning reason not to, always try to say yes. Is there a chandelier? Yes, there is. Do I know anyone who works at this space station? Yes, you do. You might put in a but. Yes, but he doesn't like you very much. To make more game from it. But a no shuts things down. A yes lets players proceed, and a player with the idea gets to be awesome. A yes but progresses, and with a complication that the players now need to resolve. Subplot. All of this is well and good for the ongoing decisions you need to make throughout a session, but there is a nightmare that we haven't discussed yet. What happens when you have no idea what to do for the session at all? It isn't answering a single question that you need to worry about. The doorbell has rung, the players are here with the dice, but you've got nothing. Can you improvise your entire session? Well, you could try to avoid the issue entirely. Some ideas for how to do that were presented by Johnny Nexus in Critical Miss back in 1998, though beware some of the humour may not have aged well. Alternatively, you can improvise something, and it's amazing how far you can get with not very much. Remember that you don't necessarily need every answer, until someone asks a question. You do need an opening concept, which is probably the biggest challenge. Easiest to fall back on is the MacGuffin. A plot object to a person that everyone wants for different reasons, but not everyone can have. Either the party's superiors want it, or they want to stop somebody else from getting it. Doesn't matter what it is for now, you can keep it vague if the information is rumour. For example, Lord Evil has lots of men around the old tomb. He must be after something. Or it could be prophetic. For example, our greatest sages say that our salvation lies at the centre of the Forbidden Forest. You must find it and work out what it is on your way. The setting of the adventure will probably suggest encounters to you. Forests will feature wild beasts, fairies and similar. An ancient crypt is probably full of undead and curses. A wizard's tower will probably have golems and the odd demon. You get the idea. Many games will provide some guidance on monster stats and how challenging they are, so you can pull together something suitable, reasonably quickly and easily. Try to make sure that it isn't all combat. The players of the less combat-focused characters need something to do. If you can come up with a puzzle, that's great. If not, don't worry. Present a problem, and when the players come up with a reasonable solution, let it work. If the game allows for it, make it into a skill challenge or similar. Perhaps a chase could liven up the end, especially if the characters manage to get whatever it is first. And as for whatever it is, don't sweat it. The players will discuss that between them in the gaps between encounters whilst you're pulling stats together. Keep one ear out. I can guarantee that your players will come up with something far more interesting between them than you could. So let them. And then the player that guessed that one gets to be smug about it too. Improvisation, 
whilst important to learn, can be a very scary part of games mastering, especially when first starting out. However, it doesn't need to be. And when you get used to it, you might start to lean on it almost entirely, especially if your players often stray off the map and search for dragons. Classics of Science Fiction Frankenstein This is the semi-regular feature in which we look back at the seminal works of science fiction, the stories that outraged, baffled and appalled, the books that posited answers a generation before anyone thought to ask the questions, the novels that bent society's collective consciousness around them and seeded popular culture and humanity's vision of itself to this day. This month, Frankenstein. In 1851, in a house near Lake Geneva, George Gordon Byron challenged his friend Percy Bysshe Shelley, Percy's wife Mary Shelley and Mary's stepsister Claire Claremont, to each come up with a ghost story. Eighteen-year-old Mary came up with Frankenstein, which she later turned into a novel and published. Two hundred years later, Frankenstein is a cultural touchstone. It is the cliched metaphor of choice when we talk about the most unsettling issues our species faces genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, and humanity's relationship with nature. It may be one of the most relevant novels, as viewed from the early 21st century, ever written. Frankenstein is nominally the story of an ambitious young scientist and his ultimate creation, an artificial human, assembled from bits of corpses animated with electricity. Structurally, it is the written account of an Arctic explorer who meets the emaciated and desperate Dr. Frankenstein and recounts his tale, which, in turn, contains the story of the monster. The novel is credited as being the source of two of science fiction's most enduring tropes, the hubristic scientist pursuing forbidden knowledge and the monstrous creation, abhorred and feared by its creator. Its accounts of Frankenstein's work with cadavers are precursors to modern zombie stories, and, in some ways, it is the first modern horror novel. Frankenstein is nearly comically prescient. Should we create life if we can? What responsibilities do we have to our creations? Where does life come from? What is the spark that animates living things? And how does it come about? These are some of the most pressing questions of the modern era. With its confusing structure and sometimes irritating style, it's an open question as to how much of Frankenstein's reputation is due to the degree to which it's been vindicated by history. Chillingly, Mary Shelley's later novel, The Last Man, tells of a 21st century in which the globe has been ravaged by a plague. Frankenstein is a novel about failure. The titular character himself fails to make a great contribution to humanity. He fails in his duty to his creation and to protect those he loves. The nameless monster himself, often erroneously referred to as Frankenstein, fails to win any fellow feeling from mankind, or to persuade his creator to give him a companion. Even the narrator of the outermost layer of the novel, Robert Walton, fails to reach the North Pole. Mary Shelley's life would be characterised by futility too. She was scorned by English society because Percy Shelley was already married when she eloped with him. She lacked the foresight to publish under a pseudonym, and many contemporary critics questioned whether she was even the novel's author. While Frankenstein was a contemporary literary phenomenon, decried in establishment circles but universally known and read, according to a friend of Percy Shelley, it brought no fame or fortune to its author. The novel has shortcomings. 
Despite its modern themes, it is undeniably steeped in the Romantic tradition, with its laboured peons to the beauty of nature and the exhausting cataloguing of its characters' emotions. The framing, too, is hard work. The found record authenticity of Walton's account is at first reminiscent of Dracula, the other quintessential Gothic novel. But by the time Walter recounts Frankenstein's words, in turn recounting the monsters, it's all quite confusing. A bigger problem is that, for this reader at least, the monster himself lacks credibility. While he is definitely a deeply sympathetic character, capable of sensitivity and eloquence, his calculated, self-aware descent into evil seems implausible. Can sensitive, intelligent beings knowingly embrace evil for evil's sake? Modern readers are used to evil coming in the guise of greed, misaligned incentives, wrong-headedness or ambition. Most characters we think of as evil are justified to some extent in their own minds. Frankenstein's monster describes his journey to pure evil with total clarity, without seeking to justify or defend his actions. But quibbles of this kind slightly miss the point. The questions Frankenstein raises aren't easily answered. This is a novel written by a 19-year-old, which has signposted modern science and its ethical questions in a way no other has. It is both an arrestingly horrid gothic novel and a deeply moving story of failure. Pick it up to find out where science fiction came from. I've been here before, playing Outer Wilds. I have fallen into a wormhole and been spat out at the very edge of a solar system. The debris of an alien space station lies scattered around me. Lost to time, it drifts further into the void. My spacecraft is 15 kilometers away, with no means of recovery. I am entirely alone. My oxygen tank is depleted. I can hear my character gasp for air with each passing second, watching the steam form on the glass of my helmet. All I can do now is stare out into the empty void of space, watching the sun expand into a brilliant blue flame. Getting closer. I wake up at my campsite on my home planet. It was all a dream. There are two kinds of people in this world. Those who consider Outer Wilds the best game of 2019, and those who haven't played it yet. I've played it, and can say with certainty that it is the best game of last year. This game is a masterpiece of the action-adventure genre. Let's talk about why you should play Outer Wilds. Outer Wilds is an action-adventure game developed by Mobius Digital and was originally released in 2019 on the Epic's game platform. If you're unfamiliar with the controversy surrounding the Epic Store, I won't go into it here, but to summarize, Outer Wilds was the second game to sign an exclusivity deal with Epic Games, who promised them a larger cut of the profits if they only sold their game on the Epic's platform for a year. A lot of people didn't like this and boycotted the game doing it the greatest disservice in not giving it a chance. However, that year is almost up, and on June 18th, Outer Wilds will be available on the much larger platform Steam, if this article can get even one person to give it a second glance. And I can safely say that I've done my job.
I'm put in a precarious position because I must explain to you why this game is worth your time without spoiling it for so many others. Mobius Digital took a novel concept, Groundhog Day in Space, and crafted an amazing game in a 22-minute gameplay cycle. So much of what makes Outer Wilds great is the thrill of discovering its world. In this case, worlds. As you navigate a breathtaking space sandbox before the sun goes supernova and you're thrust back to square one. And where is square one? The player starts out on their home planet of Timberhearth on the night of your first voyage as Outer Wild Ventures' newest astronaut. You awaken from your pre-launch night of camping under the stars and the game begins. The very first thing you see upon opening your eyes is an explosion above your planet followed by something racing across the star-pinned night. Was it a shooting star? A satellite? The remnants of an alien race? It's your job to go out and investigate the mysteries of your solar system, armed with nothing but your omnidirectional jetpack and a ship that is surprisingly fire-resistant considering it's mostly made out of wood. Outer Wilds does an excellent job in hooking you with the pieces of a much larger puzzle and letting you play detective as you find the clues spread out across the five planets that build to a much larger narrative you will learn of the Nomi, the race of aliens that occupied the solar system before you who have seemingly gone extinct. However, remnants of their civilization remain for you to explore and through which learn the secrets of the universe. There are no objective markers and no grand quest in the Outer Wilds. There are no invisible walls, no roadblocks to progression, nothing. Do you want to find out what happened to the Nomi? You can. Want to chase after the unidentified flying object? Hop in your spaceship and set sail. Want to get viciously eaten by giant fish monsters? Hey, I don't know why you would want to do that, but knock yourself out. You can finish this game in 20 minutes or 20 hours. It's up to you. In Outer Wilds, you are driven by your own curiosity to consume volumes of lore about the universe, the Nomi, and the events that took place. This is done by reading the stone tablets that have recorded the Nomi's conversations across the systems. You quickly get an understanding of what the Nomi were like. Not so much omnipotent creators a la the engineers from Ridley Scott's Prometheus, but more just a group of quirky scientists who decided one day to throw a bunch of chemicals into a vat and see what happened. Like you, they share a passion for uncovering the truths of the universe. You'll learn about the different gnomies stationed on each planet, their names and their personalities and their hobbies. You'll gain an insight into the state of the solar system. Two Nomi in particular are like that one unbearable lovey-dovey couple who put everything on display for their peers to groan at. It's moments like these that not only make reading more enjoyable, but also help the Nomi feel like real characters that lived centuries ago. Exploring through the now crumbling ruins of their once great civilization feels even more harrowing. I was left with one burning question. What happened to the Nomi, and where are they now? The game is heavily focused on these kinds of questions that can only be answered by reading and learning through environmental storytelling. 
Along with the lack of direction, your curiosity can quickly turn into frustration when you can't find the answers you're looking for. If all this doesn't sound enjoyable to you, then Outer Wilds might not be your type of game. However, as you slug through the few lows, you will be elevated by many satisfying highs as you reach the endpoint of one mystery only for it to reveal a missing piece that you've been searching for in another. This is not all Outer Wilds has to offer though, and it does go to some lengths to change its formula, such as having various puzzles on each planet for you to solve. Some require you to make full use of all that you've learned, and others rely on your skill with the jetpack and skill with the movement mechanics and physics in the game. In one instance, you must pilot your ship and land it on an orbiting comet without breaking your ship or accidentally being pulled into the sun. It requires careful, precise movements, and you'll find yourself practicing them the more you play the game. This change in formula is also extended to each of the five planets you'll be exploring throughout the game. Each one is beautifully crafted, visually stunning, and distinct. Giant's Deep is a fierce and foaming ocean that covers the entire world, with only a few islands for you to land your ship on. The skies are filled with violent hurricanes that can throw these islands into the vacuum of space, only for the planet's gravity to pull them back down. This affects your character too, as I unfortunately learned when I attempted a seemingly survivable jump off a ledge and promptly died, not realizing that I was twice as heavy here as I was on Timber Hearth. On the other hand, Brittle Hollow's surface is a cragged wasteland that is slowly being cannibalized by its own core, which is turned into a black hole. The more time passes, the more the planet consumes itself, but you can still enter the sprawling underground city made of hanging stalagmites. This is where the Nomi lived and researched, and is filled with useful information you'll need if you want to properly explore the universe. However, the longer you spend in Brittle Hollow, the more you risk falling into the black hole, as the planet's structure begins to fail and it collapses in on itself. If you remember anything from Hello Games' No Man's Sky, it's that it is arguably crushed under the weight of its own ambition, preaching the immense endlessness of its universe, yet offering nothing to do when your boots hit the ground. Outer Wilds is the opposite, taking place on a smaller stage, but one brimming with so much content that you can sink hours into filling every log entry, traversing every planet, and uncovering every mystery. In this aspect, Outer Wilds is worth the 20 pounds asking price. This is a good time to talk about death in the Outer Wilds, and its impact on gameplay. Your character is stuck in an endless time loop. If you die, you wake up back at the beginning of the game. All your progress is stored via your ship's computer, saving you from having to memorize everything. It displays each log in a sort of a spider's web, helping you to visualize which pieces of information relate to each other and hinting at which planets you need to visit to find the next clue. Death is inconsequential as a result, as you don't lose anything because of it. While at first glance it might sound tedious having everything reset, the game's clockwork universe is actually one of its greatest strengths. I was amazed the first time I came across the Hourglass Twins. Two planets that orbit each other so closely that you can use your jetpack to hop between them. The Ash Twin is a barren desert made entirely of sand. 
and the Ember Twin is a husk planet of red rock with canyons carved along its surface. At first, I only explored the Ember Twin thinking there might be something hidden in the depths of its canyons. When I reached the bottom, I noticed a layer of sand steadily rising, lifting me out of the canyon. I looked up and noticed the Ash Twin orbiting overhead, and a cascade of sand was being pulled by the Ember Twin's gravity. As it drained more sand, I realized that not only would I have limited time to explore the Ember Twin's secrets, but the longer I waited, the more would be revealed on the Ash Twin as it emptied itself. This not only highlighted some of the feats the game's physics could achieve, but also the extent the developers have gone to make this a dynamic, active world. Things like this occur on every planet. Some might not happen until moments before the sun explodes, while others can happen the second you wake up, prompting you to race there before it's too late. If you miss it, you'll need to restart the loop. Death isn't an inconvenience. It's another tool at the player's disposal to learn these timings, and it's something you'll get familiar with after a few dozen resets. It might seem like I've given away everything, but honestly, I've only scratched the surface on what this game has to offer. To say any more would be doing you a great disservice. Not letting you experience Outer Wilds for yourself. There is so much waiting for you beyond the main menu. Your first death, your first time you watch the sun explode, all of it. Its only drawback is that you only get to experience it once. No Quarter. Welcome to the Iron Kingdoms. When I got into War Machine, the models for that game were about the most butt-ugly, chunky, badly proportioned lumps of metal you can imagine. Over the years since, they have improved tremendously. But back in the beginning, they were all cast in static, flat poses, like they had just run headlong into a window. It was the concept and the gameplay that hooked this writer. So, what was the concept? Giant, metal, steam-powered robots beating the crap out of each other. It's a great idea, and the rules really back up the concept. It has a unique resource management element, which involves your warcaster, chief battle wizard, and resource manager, shuffling focus around to power up his robots, called warjacks. Focus powers their spells, and generally enhances anything they do. The setting of War Machine has a long backstory. The world of Cairn had begun development as a role-playing game setting called the Iron Kingdoms, and its creators had flirtations with the Wizard of the Coast's Dungeons & Dragons 3 open license. What emerged was a world at war in a pseudo-fantasy version of World War I. Privateer Press published the skirmish war game War Machine Prime in 2003. Though a few more factions and a whole extra sister game called Hordes, more on this shortly, were added, the game opened with four major factions. Signar were mostly painted as the good guys, coming to aid their client state Lael that had been invaded by the great northern kingdom of Kador, a Tsarist Russia-inspired faction. The religious extremists of the god Menoth have also risen to war to carve out their own kingdom and convert the decadent Signar back to the worship of the true god. Taking advantage of all this, the Dragon Father of Crix has summoned his undead thralls to march against the Living Kingdoms. A roster of only four factions would suggest relatively little variety in the forces you could deploy. But this is where War Machine really inspired. 
All forces are led by a warcaster. And simply switching one warcaster for another, even if you change nothing else in your army, changed the spells and tactics you had available. It made the same old army play like an entirely new army. Now, for a brief introduction to the four factions. Signar is an advanced arcane nation, ruled by a populist king who is not the rightful heir to the throne. The true king of Signar having been deposed, the kingdom appears united on the surface, but there are bitter undercurrents and divisions beneath. These aren't really explored until some of the later releases, when the named characters with darker agendas begin to appear in the army lists. Signar produces the most advanced warjacks, which often have special abilities related to electricity or strange arcane effects. Also unusual for a fantasy game, they have a large number of sophisticated firearms, and their core troops, trenchers, long gunners, and gun mages, resemble steampunk versions of World War I soldiers. Though Signar can fight hand-to-hand, -hand, they excel at range. Signar are the toolbox army, bringing the right tool for the right job. Kador, the Russian-inspired Tsarist Empire, is attempting to reclaim its old glory days by retaking lost territory and pushing the newer Iron Kingdoms into the sea. Kador only field heavy warjacks. They lack the intricate arcane sciences to mass-produce warjack brains, and so invest those that they can make into the heaviest chassis they can produce. Kadoran troops are often fur-clad and dressed for a hard winter. With a preference for close-quarter fighting, their assault troops wear steam-powered mechanical armour. They also possess a few very capable long-range shooters, like the Widowmaker sharpshooters. If all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail and Kador are all about bringing the largest hammer to the party. Minoth is the old human religion, and many in both the Iron Kingdoms and the North Realm of Kador still follow, or at least are sympathetic to the old ways. But Minoth is a disinterested god, caring nothing for his human children. The protectorate of Minoth was once part of Signar, but by treaty have been granted their own realm on the desert fringes to the south of that nation. They aren't supposed to have large numbers of warjacks, but have been secretly building up their military assets, quietly converting labourjacks for warfare over time. Fielding both light and heavy warjacks, they are supported by large numbers of poorly trained, poorly equipped fanatics, often with wildly inaccurate explosive devices. Other elite crusader-type knights are also available, but it is the synergies between all the parts of the Minoth army that make it sing. Then there are the Cricks the undead thralls of the Dragonfather. Most but not all of this army are undead. Some are living pirates, some are zombie-like mechanothralls, and a few are spectral assassins. Their warjacks, called helljacks, heavy, and bonejacks, light, are powered by soul furnaces that glow with an eerie green light. They are typically more fragile and faster than other factions, and packed full of dirty tricks. The Warcaster itself is like the king piece in chess. If you lose the Warcaster, you lose your stash of focus, your warjacks power down, and you essentially lose the game. Depending on the type of army you're playing, you should always have an eye open for a decapitation strike being launched by your opponent, and be looking for an opening to make your own. In the years that followed the release of War Machine Prime came a number of supplements. War Machine Escalation in 2004, War Machine Apotheosis in 2005, War Machine Superiority in 2006, Forces of War Machine Pirates of the Broken Coast in 2007, and War Machine Legends in 2008. 
Each of these supplements added new Warcasters, new Warjacks, new units and new solos to each of the four factions. Also released in 2007 was a cleaned up version of the core rulebook called War Machine Prime Remixed. The story of the world and the war also moved on. Some of the new Warcasters introduced were upgraded, epic versions of older Warcasters, representing how their stories had moved on and their powers had grown. Some died during the course of the narrative, but all versions remained playable and tournament legal. War Machine needs only a few six-sided dice to play. Usually it's a case of rolling two and adding up the total, along with the appropriate attribute to score over a target number. There's nothing particularly unusual there, but there were two facets of the system that made War Machine particularly interesting. The first is the resource management aspect of Warcaster's focus. Different Warcasters have different focus stats, the higher the better. Not only does focus affect the range at which you can control Warjacks, but it also determines the number of points you can place to power up the Warjack, power your caster spells, and power up the caster's own defences. The second interesting aspect to gameplay is that there is no pre-measurement of distances. You just have to get good at judging them by eye. You declare your intention before the tape measure is used. This is a surprisingly nail-biting bit of gameplay. I have had armies decimated by a misjudged charge that fails to connect, leaving my unit standing right in front of the enemy gunline. In 2006, Privateer Press released a whole new sister game to War Machine called Hordes. The core mechanics were the same, but the resource management focus system was swapped out for the risk management fury mechanic instead to reflect the savage nature of Warbeasts. While in War Machine, focus is generated and allocated by a Warcaster. In Hordes, this is reversed. Warlocks harvest fury from their beasts, but leaving a Warbeast with fury unharvested at the end of the turn gives rise to the risk of losing control of it and it ripping your own army apart instead of your opponents. The beauty is that War Machine and Horde are based in the same world and are cross-compatible with each other, effectively giving Warmer Hordes, as it quickly became known, an extra four factions to play with. The Trollbloods are a slow but hardy army composed of trolls, trollkin, and mighty diatrolls. The Circle of Orboros are tricksy, elemental-inspired druids composed of wild tribes, feral creatures, and wolds, elemental constructs. The Scorn are eastern not-elves, with a society based on slavery and pain, and a rigid caste system of warriors and beasts. And the Legion of Everblight are the dragonspawn of corrupted, blighted arctic elves and eyeless dragonspawn monsters. Warmer Hordes was mostly balanced. In conflicts featuring war machines versus hordes, the beasts had an advantage, but weren't unbeatable. The fury mechanics meant that war beasts hit very hard. If you could weather the initial charge and counter-strike, a war machine army could win the day. But more often than not, you were put on the back foot and struggled to recover. This forced the development of more inventive tactics and use of terrain by war machine players, which was no bad thing. In 2009, Privateer Press released a fifth faction into the game, the Retribution of Skyra, who were angry elves seeking revenge on the human kingdoms for their use of magic. The Retribution brought new high-tech arcane toys to the field of battle. While their warjacks were still large, they were all sweeping lines and high-tech aesthetics, rather than the chunky steampunk look of the humans. War Machine Prime Mark II, along with a supporting suite of army books called Forces of War Machine, were released during 2010. This brought a host of rule clarifications and a general clean-up, along with a completely new point system to help players buying their armies. This was welcome and worthwhile. 
A further series of books supported the development of the setting over the next five years. War Machine Wrath in 2011, War Machine Colossals in 2012, War Machine Vengeance in 2014, and War Machine Reckoning in 2015. These books followed the same template as previous releases, supporting all factions with a selection of new toys with which to crush your enemies. Hordes 2 was upgraded to Hordes Primal Mark II, as well as a suite of forces books to mirror War Machine. It also saw some rules changes intended to help balance between the games. Alas, I don't feel it was fully successful in this. War Beasts became easier to control, and as a result lost some of the enraged feral feel that had made playing them unique. War Machine Colossals brought a new class of unit to the game. The Colossals pushed War Machine to ever larger battles, and it was at about this point that I began to lose interest in the game. I wasn't that interested in ever bigger armies, or playing games with multiple warcasters on each side. I preferred the original skirmish-oriented focus. 2013 also saw the release of a sixth faction, the super-advanced robotic Convergence of Kairos, followers of the Machine Goddess. The models followed an Art Deco aesthetic, and I admit I was tempted. But, in the end, for me, it was just sheer exhaustion after a decade of exhaustively promoting and running the game that held me back. War Machine Mark III and Hordes Mark III was released in 2016, and seems to be the final iteration of the game. Several limited release factions have been added to pad out the world of the Iron Kingdoms, with themed mercenary factions and the newly released Infernals. Alas, I have mostly missed out on Mark III, but Privateer Press have just renewed my interest with their recent Kickstarter, Warcaster Neo Mechanica. Neo Mechanica is a completely new game, unrelated to the previous Warmer Hordes, set in a sci-fi universe. The game features clashes between, you guessed it, giant robots. However, the game engine appears to be completely reimagined. Custom dice are used for tests, and forces deploy through gates that can be moved around the table. Models that are killed on the table can be resummoned from a gate, so you never run out of troops. The game is entirely scenario and objective driven, with a limited number of turns to complete each mission. This appeals to me, as I feel it addresses the issues that the original game had. Now that my passion is rekindled, it's time to break out my old War Machine and Hordes armies, buy the new Mark III card decks, and download the Mark III rules, and set to work with my angry elves kicking seven shades out of my opponents again. Board Game Review The Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-Earth The Lord of the Rings Journeys in Middle-Earth is a new miniatures-based board game from Fantasy Flight, featuring a campaign, modular maps, experience points and upgradable equipment. It's a cooperative experience for one to five players. I've been playing solo, trying one campaign with two heroes and another with three. Journeys is smooth and wonderful to play. Each character's small deck represents both their abilities and their skill checks, and there are a couple of excellent mechanisms which help you manage your success in the game. First, there is scouting, in which you draw a number of cards, equip one for use, and then choose to put the remainder on the top or bottom of your deck. This is significant because when making combat and other tests in the game, you'll draw cards looking for success symbols in the corner. So there's a process here whereby you can mitigate your own luck. Additionally, it's an interesting gameplay challenge, because a lot of the success icons are on your better ability cards. So do you want them in your deck for skill checks, or equipped so you have the abilities to use? Each deck is made up of standard skills, 
character skills and a set of class skills. However, between adventures you can spend experience points and lore points to add cards to your deck and even upgrade your equipment. One of the things that's so addictive about journeys is the desire to dive into another adventure straight away to see how your deck changes will influence the next game. What first impressed me with journeys is the variety which it is able to deliver. Some games use hexagonal jigsaw pieces to fit together as a landscape to explore, while other chapters use two large square tiles for the inside of buildings, using largely the same movement and combat rules for an indoor skirmish. One scenario even issued combat in favour of talking to a number of patrons of an inn and trying to identify a spy. It's lovely to play the campaign because every chapter genuinely feels like a fresh challenge. In the course of my testing, I restarted my campaign a couple of times so I was able to appreciate how even a scenario I had already played changed a second time around, with an alternative map to explore, varied encounters and different solutions. One important thing to note, this game is app-driven and requires a device for play on either Android, Steam or iOS. This isn't to everybody's taste, but the game's incredible replay variety and comparative complexity of randomly chosen side quests is largely made possible by the app. But while the app works very well, it does represent a potential point of delay or failure in your evening, which a purely analogue board game doesn't. On my Samsung, hardly an unusual brand, the app wouldn't function unless I restarted first. My tablet shut down at one point, so my game was on hold while I rebooted and retrod the actions I'd taken since the last autosave. These are arguably small things, and ultimately no different from my experience of any other app or game software. It's up to you whether that works well enough for you on game night. I'd also recommend a larger device. I started on my phone, and the text and details simply aren't large enough to be enjoyed properly. I managed to delete one campaign by accident, and another scenario I failed because I had not been able to see one of the mission-critical icons on the board. The miniatures themselves are great, full of character and with great detail on the plastic moulding, with the standout piece surely being the oversized cave troll. I had a couple of miniatures which were slightly misshapen, but the old suspend-them-in-hot-water trick fixed them quickly. They paint up very nicely, which is definitely something you'll want to consider, because in their unpainted form, the enemies have a very similar stature and equipment, and it can be tough to tell them apart at a glance. The board can get cluttered, though. Even with only two heroes, I found that there was often not enough room for my heroes and the attacking creatures to share the correct space. It's hard to imagine how to manage the space at the full five-player count. This is a fantasy flight game, so you can expect amazing art and components. The design on the map tiles is beautiful, and the app guides you through laying out the new locations as you travel, gradually seeing a wonderful fantasy landscape emerge. I had one small grievance. While the art is drawn in a kind of isometric perspective, the map layouts aren't consistent with their facing. So often you'll have two features side by side which are upside down to one another. To me, that prevents the wonderful locations from being fully immersive. While there's a small handful of negatives, my overall experience of Journeys is very positive. This title was kindly sent to me for review by Asmodee UK, but honestly I found myself playing it long after I had enough notes for this article. It inspired me enough to paint the miniatures, which I hardly ever make the effort to do, even jumping the queue of other unpainted collections on my shelf. Once I've finished this campaign, 
I'm almost certainly going to pick up the DLC adventure, also available through the app. And I know that once social distancing is behind us, this is one I can't wait to share with friends, because I think they'll love it too. Original Fiction, Acid, Chapter 3 Historians, safely seconded in academic surroundings, speculate that monitors probably started off as mercenaries, or assassins, or a secret service, or even vigilantes extracting their own version of justice. Though, after several hundred years of debate and speculation, they still fail to come up with any actual evidence for any of these. It is said, usually in reverent tones, that monitors bring stability to the floating populace of Venus by preventing anyone from gaining a monopoly on power. Few consider that a group with the ability to bring down legitimate governments might need oversight themselves. Extract from Corporate Power, The Myths, The Truth, by Orlock. Denica had only a second to trigger her bracelet. The adrenaline supercharged her reactions and she leapt into action. She vaulted over the massive table being used as an impromptu barricade and landed next to a massive guerrilla guard. Taken by surprise, the reset of the guards on this side of the makeshift barrier would take a second or two to react, so she had a window to change things in her favour. No good choices, just least bad. No real cover. In her haste, she fumbled the slash after her landing, and even the slow gorilla managed to block. She lost one knife in the neck of a human guard on her other side. She had only a second or two before the other guards could back away from the table and pepper her with bullets. The guards were all shouting to each other, to her, to whoever was coordinating on the radio, adding to the chaos. The gorilla got a blow in while she was frantically evaluating. That broke some ribs. Too many of them. Too close. I need to make some room. She felt the ice of medical cocktails slide into her blood and take away the pain almost immediately. The massive ape tried to grab her, but only managed to get her poncho. It tore the smart fabric from her as it reared back for a final shattering punch, leaving tatters around her neck. She ducked the blow, starting to feel the adrenaline peak. Only a few seconds left. She thumbed three tiny charges from her belt, slapped them all on the table behind her and jumped. The standing backflip took her barely over the table edge and landed her on the other side in an untidy heap. She dived for the doorway she'd entered by the only one she could reach in time. Her overstretched muscles protested as her hyped-up adrenaline system forced her forward. Something in her left leg tore as she threw herself towards the doorway. Before she reached it, an angry fire god kicked her in the back and flung her the remaining few metres into the corridor smashing her into the wall, face mask first. There was a light, a flickering, fire, smoke filling her nose, something tugging at her arm. Mawiri gripped her arm with her forepaws and kicked desperately. Denica blearily looked down. What? What are you doing here? she mumbled. Her voice was dull in her ears like she was underwater barely audible under the high-pitched ringing. The squirrel signed rapidly. Bad, bad, bad. Security system's on full alert. Couldn't get through the crawl space. Got to run. Now. Everything came back with a splitting pain in her head. Her heart was hammering through her throat, into her mouth. 
Her medical bracelet pumped the adrenal antidote into her blood and fell from her wrist. Her ears still rang, but her head began to clear. Too down. Nothing felt right at all. It was like there was a delay between her intention and her body moving, synapses being fired by the artificial mix of toxic stimulants. Blearily, she realised she was high. Her body armour must be medicating her at maximum levels. Glacial thoughts slid into place. Things must be pretty bad. She was vaguely aware of lying in a crumpled heap, surrounded by splinters. I should probably go... Somewhere. The doorway before her loomed as large, empty rectangle filled with grey-black smoke and the hazy flickering of small fires. Suddenly, the fire suppression systems kicked in and foam exploded from hidden nozzles. The smoke was whisked away by hidden vents. Mawiri kicked her frantically again. Why is the squirrel here? She should be off on her part of the mission. How long have I been here? Minutes? Hours? I really should be somewhere, shouldn't I? The dense smoke cleared, revealing two standing guerrilla guards in dented armour. They were covered in blood, staggering through the apocalyptic room, lifting debris and checking bodies. Both had wide swathes of angry, blooded and blistered bold patches and numerous splinters sticking from exposed flesh. One of them lifted a large remnant of the table from something. It signed to its companion, and even in her adult state, Denica automatically translated the gestures. Not the one, all dead friends. Sad. Sad, sad. Enemy escaped. The door, that way. Duty. Both gorillas turned towards the door. They saw her as the last of the smoke cleared. Oh, shit. One of them roared and raised a twisted rifle. Nothing happened. The big creature grunted in disgust, altering its grip and holding the ruined gun as a club. The other guerrilla guard scooped up a stray gun from the floor and levelled it at Denica. She was amazed at how clearly she could see the ape's finger curling on the trigger. Mawiri looked up at Denica, kicked hard and bounced away. The little animal jumped off a pile of smouldering debris through the doorway and sprang towards the gorilla. The tiny black shape seemed to travel in slow motion. Her arms extended in instinctual squirrel glide as she slammed into the hulking guard's snarling face. The gorilla reared back, massive fist coming up to pluck Mawiri away, but she'd got her claws in. With an awful howl, the gorilla ripped Mawiri away, taking shreds of gorilla flesh with her. Blood spattered the squirrel, Mawiri's clawed hands waving frantically, deep slashes visible along the sides of the ape's face. The gorilla held the squirrel in one huge fist for a second, then squeezed. Mawiri ruptured with an agonised squeal. Denica's thoughts moved. She triggered another bracelet without even thinking about it. Her thumb pressed on the activator. Mawiri had brought her the seconds she needed. Oh, don't think about it, don't think about it. The chemicals hounded the fog from her brain, coiling energy into her limbs, thrumming sprung steel. She moved, rolling sideways as the first bullet slammed into the wall where she'd been slouched. She half crawled, half ran down the corridor, pushing her legs to move faster. She hurtled back down the corridor, limped past the pile of guerrilla guards she'd dispatched earlier, then on past the barricades the security team had left in place near the main elevator. 
drugs and desperation inhibited her caution as she skidded around the corner. Her left leg didn't seem to work properly, barely responding. She only needed to get down this corridor and she'd almost be at the resident stairs. The corridor was empty. Empty. Where did the rest of the guards go? <laughs> they fled. Some part of her brain began to register sirens going off. Flashing strobe lights were adding a red hue to everything. Vintage artwork, gold wall panels, dark wood, silver metal, ancient, mixed with modern, all equally exclusive. Decadence, excess, vanity. Someone was screaming. She was screaming. Denica burst through another open door, dodged right reflexively, firing her pistol carelessly at a lone guard caught out of position. He fell, micro flechettes finding gaps in his light armour. She reloaded a weapon without thinking as she hauled herself up the curving grand staircase. Bullets slammed into the thick carpeting near her feet, none of them seeming to hit her. Not important. She whirled round shakily, firing her pistol at the fuzzy guard-like shapes on the balcony. The thin pistol drooped, and she struggled to hold it steady. When did it uh, When did it get this heavy? She squeezed the trigger once more, but found nothing but air. She didn't remember dropping the gun. It didn't matter. She was fairly sure she'd killed everyone. Blearily, she realised she was lying on the floor. Dark blue carpeting took up half the world. Her body urged her to stay, to sleep, forever. One bracelet left. Need to save it. Denica gritted her teeth and fumbled the antidote from bracelet three. The artificial adrenaline side effects were chased from her mind by icy fingers. The injuries she'd sustained exploded pain across every nerve and she realised she was screaming. Denica bit her tongue slammed her head into the soft carpet and let out an animal moan, pushing the pain away with years of mental discipline, forcing herself to ignore everything and get to her feet. Her left leg sent burning agony up through her body with every step. She couldn't look. It barely supported her weight and she leaned heavily on the banister as she climbed the sweeping staircase to the top floor. She was so very close. Step step agonisingly closer. The room she passed through taunted her. Genuine old earth chandeliers bounced blinding rainbows and sun-bright flares from golden fittings and oversaturated furnishings. Opulent fabrics adorned the furniture that kept getting in her way, expensive in the casual way the wealthy didn't even notice. Faces on walls leered at her from portraits in gilt frames. She emptied her last pistol into one before she realised it was a full-body, life-sized portrait. Finally, the mental map she'd been following, the map she and Mawiri had built up, led her to the study door, the inner sanctum, the end of her mission. Job done. Almost. She fell against it, and it opened silently, miraculously. Denica staggered through and collapsed to her knees, fighting to hold on to the strands of purpose. <sighs> I'm actually a little disappointed. Denica shook her head and tried to focus. 
She was on the floor somehow, kneeling. Her vision cleared. Peter Oliviana Castillo sat behind her desk, the centre of a vast cathedral of wealth and style. A counterpoint to the gaudy opulence of the residents outside. The study was a place of pure business. The desk was a modern affair, all edges and black volcanic glass. The rest of the room kept dancing in and out of focus, so she concentrated on her target. I thought I'd need all of these extra guards, you see, Castillo said. Denica realised there were several, many guards lining the expansive room. Their weapons were all trained on her. I was curious, naturally. We're always hearing about how skilled monitors are. You people are practically a bedtime story. Castillo paused. Something glinted. She was taking a sip from a delicate silver teacup, taking her time, savouring it. So, when I realised you were... How do I put it? Here to kill me, I began to watch you more closely. I must say, you played a very long game. Bravo. Five years... I am genuinely impressed at that part. Danica felt as though the floor was tilting backwards. Red-tinged blackness closed in from the edges of reality. The painter's voice seemed to be far off. She felt a sudden breath of cold air pass over her. Her thoughts cleared as the last gasp of the medicines in her armour protected her from a total blackout. The pain in her... everything started receding. Vision began to snap back, gravity reasserted itself. She realised with a cold shiver she was no longer wearing the mask. Her hands reflexively went up to her face and came away blooded, left hand tingling with pins and needles. Castillo smiled. Denica knew that smile. It was the smile reserved for when a rival company was bested. The old businesswoman gestured sharply and a gorilla limped towards her desk. It was covered in drying blood and had spray bandages over large portions of its singed body. It held her mask in its large hand. Something in Denica twisted. A sense of loss more profound than anything she'd experienced before brought a lump into her throat. Castillo took the mask. It was missing an ear and split almost in two. The white and red chroma coating dulled, scratched and tarnished. This. I've heard you each wear one. It's important, isn't it? Heritage? I respect that. She carefully placed it on her desk, almost reverently. Denikatan. I assume that's not actually your name, but it'll do, won't it? Tan. Despite... She gestured with the teacup at the kneeling monitor. This... I actually think you're very skilled. You you did well as an intern. I didn't interfere. You did that yourself. You've earned a position here under me. Even now, after all this, you can still have that job. The painter took another sip of tea and carefully placed the cup back in the saucer with a final clink. Punctuation made real. 
Something new is on the horizon, and I need resources for what's coming. You're smart, capable, ruthless. I like that. Just say yes, and you're in. Simple as that. All is forgiven. She spread her hands, a timeless, open gesture. No tricks. Denica blinked slowly. She swayed and fell forward, catching herself on her hands. She hoped it was convincing enough. It was mostly real, after all. She used the distraction to trigger the final bracelet. Hot clarity thundered into her blood. To be continued. Thank you for listening to Parallel Worlds, Issue 11. If you'd like to read these articles and more, why not consider becoming a patron? There's a link on our website, www.parallelworlds.uk. This issue featured articles written by Angus McNichol, Chris Cunliffe, Christopher Jarvis, Lewis Calvert, Sam Long and Tom Grundy. It was edited by Tom Grundy. This audio edition featured the voices of Christopher Jarvis, Jamie Sugar, Kai Zen, Kareem Cronfley, Peter Wotherspoon and Sarah Golding and was edited by Peter Wotherspoon. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We would like to thank our patrons for their support. For copies of back issues of our magazine and podcasts, visit our website at www.parallelworlds.uk. 